Hello, I'm Chris Kreitcho, and this is the Nura Station Podcast, a 15 to 20 minute show about learning the Rust programming language. This is episode 14, Stringing Things Along. This week, I have some follow up. First, a few weeks ago, I got a couple very helpful questions from listener Jeremy W. Sherman, who pointed out that in my discussion of the unit type in episode 12, I was a bit ambiguous about whether the type has a value. That's because I myself was a bit unclear about the best way to summarize it. As Jeremy pointed out, the unit type is a low information type, but it does have a value. That, of course, is what makes it usable as an expression, because remember, all expressions have values. That value, then, is that it is an empty tuple. And even though that's a little odd to think about, it is still useful. In fact, it's actually essential for Rust to have the type safety and memory safety guarantees that it does, and be able to return quote-unquote nothing without having nulls. So my thanks to Jeremy for that clarification. Second, this week I had a really interesting exchange on GitHub with user Tamir Bahar at TMR232, who brought up a point I hadn't fully considered about my discussion of type coercion in C back in episode 11. He pointed out a scenario where adding together a string and an integer doesn't cause a coercion, since it just does pointer arithmetic. It was a close cousin of the example I had in mind, where there actually is coercion, but it wasn't quite the same. I'll link to the discussion in the show notes, as I think it's pretty interesting. And one of the things that discussion highlighted for me was the fact that the types are trivially coercible in C. Depending on what exactly you tell the compiler to do, you may or may not get a warning, and you may well get a segfault regardless of which way you tackle it. So thanks to Tamir Bahar for the thoughtful feedback and conversation. Now, today we're going to talk about strings in Rust. You might be surprised it took us so long to get to something which seems so ordinary, but as you'll see, there's a reason I picked now to talk about them. By waiting this long, we've been able to lay the foundation we need to understand pretty much everything going on with strings in Rust. So, happily, I have a lot less hand-waving I need to do than I would have if we'd gotten here sooner. There is a method to my madness. One thing to note right away— Rust's strings have some pretty substantial differences from many other string types you might be used to, especially in C-descended languages. For one thing, all Rust strings are UTF-8 encoded Unicode, not ASCII. For another, and this might be especially surprising to C and C++ developers, they are not null-terminated, so... One, you can have null characters in the middle of strings, and two, finding a null character is not how you find the end of a string. One small benefit of this is that the length of a Rust string is the number you would expect if you hadn't been trained by years of dealing with C-style character arrays. That is, it's the actual number of characters in the string. I think that is pretty excellent, but it does require a bit of mental readjustment at first. Another thing which people often find surprising about Rust strings is that Rust basically has two kinds of strings available to us. They're closely related, and it's pretty easy to convert either type to the other, but they are a little different, and those differences are important. The two types of string we see in Rust are the string type, string with a capital S, and the string slice type, spelled lowercase str. You'll far more often see that latter one as a borrow, ampersand str. In fact, I've never seen the non-borrowed form outside Rust documentation. The capital S string type is an owned, 
heap-allocated, growable type. Under the hood, it's a vector of UTF-8-encoded Unicode code points. Meanwhile, the stir slice type, and that's how we'll refer to it from here on out, stir, the stir slice type is a reference to a specific chunk of memory consisting of some specific number of those Unicode code points. Those slices can be allocated with static lifetimes, or they can point to some or all of a given string. As you'd expect, you can create new string instances by typing string colon colon new and parentheses. You can also allocate them with a specific size with the with capacity method, which you might do if you know ahead of time how big they're going to be. And that can be especially handy if you know a given string will only ever have a given value, though in that case you actually might want to use a stir. String instances are growable, though, so if you start out with a default size or you specify the size and it ends up being too small, it's not the end of the world. There is a slight performance penalty if you have to ask the memory allocator to give it more memory, but it will just hand you more memory from the heap if you need it. The other very common way to create string instances is from string slices, including string literals. You can write string colon colon from open parentheses quote some string literal quote close parentheses or you can write quote some string literal quote dot to string parentheses parentheses either way you just get a string instance back now a moment ago i said string slices including string literals and the reason i said that is that a string literal is actually always just a stack allocated string slice, a stir slice, that is, with a static lifetime. The same is true of any string literal, any string constant you define in a module, any string literal you're using anywhere. You can also get string slices, those stir types, with non-static lifetimes, though, by borrowing them from existing string instances or as subsets of other string stir slices. Now, I keep saying string slices or stir slices. What do I mean by slice? Well, this is just Rust's word for a view into a given sequence of associated memory. And as we'll discuss more a little bit later, there are lots of kinds of slices. But you can think of all of them, and thus for our purposes right now, these stir slices specifically, as references to contiguous chunks of memory. That is, they're a pointer to a location in memory and a length of memory being pointed to. Now, throughout this discussion, I've repeatedly used the term Unicode code points. This is because both string and stir represent Unicode strings. So we need to understand a little about Unicode characters to really see what's going on here. Unicode strings are streams of bytes which make up graphemes. A grapheme is what looks like a single character when you're reading. So, for example, when you see any ordinary English letter, or an accented A in Shakespearean poetry, or the Enye character used in Spanish, or the accented vowels in both classical and modern Greek, or the logograms used for Chinese characters, or even an individual music notation from the relatively recent standard music font layout, in any of those cases, you're looking at a grapheme. But those graphemes are often made up of more than one byte, more than one code point. So the Greek diacritical markings, take 
two bytes to represent one character. Many Chinese logograms require three bytes, and Rust strings just abstract over this so that you can interact with text in whatever language, even, as I noted a moment ago, musical language, without having to worry about it overall. However, this does mean that you cannot index directly into a string, like you would into a character array in C or a string list in Python. Instead, we can use a specific API provided for this kind of access. On any given string instance, we can use the chars method to get an iterator over the characters, rather than over code points. Then we can use the nth method, which also comes from the iterator trait, to get the character at the visual location of the nth character. Now, another consequence of handling strings as Unicode is that the length of a stir slice or of a string is the number of bytes which make up the total set of graphemes in the string. But that won't necessarily be the number of graphemes. So if I type the classical Greek word agapao, I love, that will be eight bytes, but six graphemes, alpha, gamma, alpha, pi, alpha, omega, there are the graphemes, and there are some accents and breathing marks in the mix that push the number of bytes required to represent those graphemes up to eight. So if you're ever wondering why a length is different than you expect, that's probably why. You can thank Unicode. All the usual rules about mutability, borrowing of references, and lifetimes apply to strings just like everywhere else. However, when you borrow a string, a lot of times what you'll get is an andster reference. That seems a little strange, right? These are different types, aren't they? Well, yeah, they are. But this brings us to the final thing we need to cover in our discussion of stir slices versus string instances, an idea we call dereferencing, and specifically dereference coercion. When we make a reference to a given type, we can specify via the deref trait what it dereferences into. This trait says what happens when you type star in front of some name binding, star foo, for example. But it also says what happens in this scenario with string types, and here's why. The dereference trait has a rule so that if you have some type A, which defines the deref trait with a target of type B, and you type ampersand A, it can, and when necessary will, automatically become a reference to type B, ampersand B. And the string type implements deref with stir as its target. So when you borrow a string, you can have a borrowed stir slice whenever you need it. Here's a concrete example of that from the standard library. The stir slice type has a method called chars. We mentioned it above. It gives you the characters in the slice. But we can also call it on string instances. Chars expects to take ampersand stir. It expects to borrow a string slice as its argument. And as you may recall from our discussion of struct methods many episodes back, the dot syntax for methods is just syntactical sugar for calling a given function with the instance you've called that method on as its first argument. So when you call dot chars on some string instance, it passes that string instance as the first argument to the method. And since chars expects a string slice reference rather than a string, it automatically dereferences it into a string slice for you. That's pretty neat. Now, note two things carefully about this, though. One, it is not magic. Because it's built on Rust's trait system, 
It works for any pair of types equally well if you have implemented deref for them. Two, it also isn't silent type coercion. The compiler does this for you, but this only happens when you've said explicitly that one type can be transformed into another. If you haven't implemented deref for a given pair of types, this will never happen. So deref coercions don't just apply to string slices and string instances, but that's actually the case for lots of things with strings and string slices. Most of what I've said here, in fact, basically everything except the Unicode details, is equally or almost equally applicable to other vector and slice types. These issues tend to come up most often with strings, because dealing with strings is such a common case in so many different programming tasks. But a string is not a special case in Rust. If you look at how it's implemented in the standard library, you'll see that it's just a struct that wraps a vector type. Vectors are general-purpose, heap-allocated, growable memory type in Rust. That's precisely what makes them useful for the string type. They're general-purpose, so a string can very easily be just one special case with its own additional functionality. But you can just as easily do the same kinds of things with numbers, or enums, or structs, or whatever else. If, for some reason, you need a vector filled with hash maps, which takes strings as keys and enums as values, well, you can do that. The type signature might be a little complicated, but it's not at all a problem as long as the type is well-defined. So for any given vector type, then, you can take a slice of it, and you can pass that slice as an argument to a function, and you can pass back a slice from a function. Of course, those slices are references, so you have to manage the lifetimes properly in those cases, like we talked about in episode 13 a few weeks ago. But you can do it. Similarly, you can create a new vector from a given slice. You can dereference a vector to get to an underlying slice as long as the deref trait is implemented. Since strings are built on vectors, they have access to the whole vector API. Similarly, string slices are slices and behave accordingly. Things you can do with other slices, you can do with string slices. And vice versa. In general, the things you can do with those string slices are applicable to slices of any vector, apart, of course, from string-specific APIs like chars. But that's exactly what we'd expect when extending one type with another. Do note that stir slices are a little bit special in that they are a primitive type in Rust, and the compiler does take care of a couple extra details for you, like inferring static lifetimes on all string literals. But even so, a lot of the implementation of stir is just like you'd see for any other slice type. This is one of the things that I really appreciate about Rust. The way its standard library is built out of the same basic types and building blocks that we use for our day-to-day -day work in the language. There aren't a lot of special cases. If you want to go look at how a string works, you just look at the source and see how it works. And it turns out to work pretty much like you'd expect if you already know how vectors work. This has two really helpful effects. First, it means that if a given type in Rust is perplexing you, you can usually figure out what's going on by just looking at its implementation. If you keep digging, you'll eventually see how the pieces fit together. And you usually don't have to understand a bunch of compiler internals for that to be true. You just have to be able to understand the basic building blocks of the language. Second, it means that there's a lot of pressure on the language team to make sure that those basic building blocks, the primitives, are as good as they can be, because everything else is built on them. If vectors were a big mess, for example, strings would be too. 
And as a nice bonus, it also means that any improvements to those basic building blocks automatically works for everything built on top of them. Vectors are just structs themselves. They have a set of associated traits and trait methods they implement, but then get picked up by strings because strings use vectors. So it goes. When you get down to the very bottom of the chain of things we do with strings, you'll find some array types and a little bit of actually unsafe code that does full-on memory allocation work, as you'd expect, but even that code uses ordinary Rust primitives. This is why, as I mentioned in the news section last week, we can build Rust with Rust. There really aren't many special cases. I'll link to relevant source files for all of these things in the show notes, because it's actually quite clear how the types are implemented, and I encourage you to read through those. We shouldn't take this for granted. This is not the only way to approach language design, and there are plenty of languages out there which are not built this way, but instead rely on special cases in the compiler, on special syntax or keywords, or other things like that to deal with these kinds of issues. But by building everything on top of these core primitives, and by choosing really good primitives to build on top of, Rust lets us build almost anything, and I mean that. If you have a reason to, say if you were building a real-time operating system in the language, you can rip out the standard library and supply your own implementations of all of these things. The basic pieces you need are all there in the language itself. So that's an overview of strings in Rust. Next time, we'll start looking at some of the quote-unquote smart pointer types, and when we would need to use them, and how to use them. I might also have a bonus episode headed your way on thinking about open source and careers and all of that. As noted in the beginning of the show, I really enjoy feedback. Jeremy's questions and Tamir's comments both made me think harder about Rust, and I learned a lot from both exchanges. Thanks to Hamza Sheikh. Chris Palmer, and Vesa Kailavirta for sponsoring the show this month. You can see a full list of sponsors in the show notes. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, you can set up recurring contributions at patreon.com slash or you can give a one-off at Venmo, Dwala, or Cash.me. You can find links to those, as well as to examples of strings and coercions and all of these things at neurastation.com. You can also follow the show on Twitter, at NeuraStation, or follow me there, at Chris Kreitshow. You can always help others find the show by rating and reviewing it on iTunes, recommending it in another podcast directory, tweeting or otherwise sharing about it on social media, or just telling a friend. Please do respond. You can always say hello in the thread for the episode on the Rust user forum at users.rust-lang.org, or you can shoot me an email at hello at neurastation.com. Until next time, happy coding.